Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am your host, Jasper at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. Uh, and this week I am joined by an academic uh, whose work I'm very interested in. Um, and it focuses on pop culture and politics. Uh, he is Dr. Dan Hasler-Forrest, uh, Assistant Professor of Cultural Theory and Transmedia and Practice at Utrecht. Utrecht, I think I got that right. University in the Netherlands, um, and author of a bunch of books on the overlaps between political and cultural theory and criticism. Um, all very super interesting stuff. Uh, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Dan. Hey, it's my pleasure. I, I think it's fair to say that your academic speciality is kind of niche. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, like I, I'm very interested in it, but I remember when I was reading, um, your first book, so Capitalist Superheroes, Caped Crusaders in the Neoliberal Age, uh, people say, so, oh, what are you reading? And I'm like, oh, I'm reading a book about how superheroes are capitalist and how art is political and like the overlaps between them all. And people will be like, what? Um, like, <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, no, it is. There's, there's a whole discipline about it. Um, so, uh, I wondered if you'd just be able to talk a little bit about, um, your field and, uh, you know, analyzing pop culture through this political lens and framing art as being, politically reactive i guess sometimes um whether that's consciously or unconsciously um and whether you just be able to explain a little bit about that for people who maybe don't know so much about it um, sure at, yeah sure i mean I, I guess we all you know we all develop in our own little bubbles right so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always a little i'm still a little surprised when i find that you know as you i think accurately phrase it that the stuff that i do is very um is very niche niche mm-hmm. nicheous mm-hmm. i don't know what the what the right adjective is it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm in some very obscure part of academia, which is always odd to me because, um, uh, the, 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 I, I guess the, the two kinds of questions that I deal with or that I try to relate to each other, um, are, you know, one of them is about the kind of culture that is just super popular, that is like excessively mm-hmm. popular. So, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like, like you said, like superheroes, like, like Star Wars, like Disney princesses, um, those kinds of things, big commercial entertainment. And, and the other question is about the, you know, the history of capitalism and how capitalism is not, you know, is primarily a set, you know, to be understood as a set of social relations, but it's also a lived culture. Mm. Um, and a, a, a huge part of that lived culture is not just the way that um, uh, superhero movies and branded content circulates in the form of commodities, but how they also are hugely, you know, meaningful, emotional objects that people like dearly love, uh, and, mm. and, you know, and, 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 um, uh, and create all kinds of things around. And, and, and so, so, um, uh, my experience in academia has been that even within media studies, uh, that kind of culture is really not, um, not a primary object of study to most. Um, uh, and to those who do engage with it, uh, I would say that People are either usually interested in political economy, so they're looking at how um, how people make money, how companies make money through these things, but not necessarily at the text themselves. Mm. Um, or they look from a more sociological perspective uh, or, uh, at uh, ethnographical studies of fans. So, what are fans doing with these things, and how do fans subvert the cultures that are like commercial cultures that are created around them? And those two fields sometimes mm. overlap and interrelate, but but not not so often. Uh, and I find that the, for me, the most interesting uh, a part of what I you know write and talk and and, and 
and, and think about um, is precisely the interaction between those two. So how does political economy, how can you combine political economy, which is always questions about how, you know, uh, about ownership. So who owns what and what is that ultimately, who pro you know, the old question, you know, who profits, right? Mm. Um, uh, who profits and how to how is meaning made and in what ways are meaning, are meaning circulated that actually um, either support or contradict those systems of value creation. I am I'm, now I'm making it sound, you know, <laughs> super abstract and weird, but <laughs> so it's like, like, the, the, like a question will always be, you know, so if, if the new Star Wars movie is good, right, in a kind of, like in a, in a, because it gets gender right and it gets diversity right and it's anti-capitalist mm. in some kind of weird way, right, but mm. it's also owned, um, it's also making profit for the biggest company in the world, which mm. increases its power and its hold over us, what do we do, right? How do we make sense of that? Is it good mm -hmm. or bad? Right? I think that that's a way to make it a little bit more, um, to uh, make the question maybe a little bit more uh, uh, transparent or understandable. Mm, well, I was actually just going to ask you about that next. That seeks nicely in. Um, oh, good. We hadn't even, that wasn't even planned. But there, <laughs> there, we, there we go. There we go. Um, because, well, yeah, you mentioned uh, episode nine, the trailer came out uh, the other day as a time of recording, The Rise of Skywalker coming yeah. out in Cinemas is Christmas. Um you, you you are you are a big fan of these things, right? Like your Twitter's always just like ah, oh, I you know ah, uh, you know yeah, you know what it is, Jasper. Like I, you know, I grew up a fan, right? So mm. I I grew up as a as like, and that doesn't make me exceptional in any way, right? Being mm. a white boy, being a fan <laughs> of Star Wars in of the nineteen eighties, um, yeah, yeah. but. Um, uh, I, I guess I would call myself, so I think like, that's a thing that you don't recover from really, you know, you, you, you there's just no mm. getting rid of that. If you grow up with star Wars and with ET and with Indiana Jones, uh, it's always and, gonna and, pull you back. yeah, it's, it's like, it's part of your DNA, right? Or it becomes written into your DNA in some weird mm. way. So, uh, I always like, I often refer to myself like half jokingly as a recovering fan because, <laughs> Like in all honesty, I, I I really like for me the Last Jedi is not just a good Star Wars movie, but really the first good Star Wars movie, the first one like <laughs> the only good Star Wars movie, it's, the it's one the, the first only one that Star I... Wars movie, yeah, it's the first Star Wars movie that's about something. Yeah, and I, that and that has a complicated character, and that has you know, and it's it's, a, a, it's just technically or aesthetically this marvel to look at. So I I it's I I'm a total fan of that movie. And I'm a fan of what that movie does with the, like, with the history of Star Wars. Because the funny thing is, it's, it's one of those things where I would, I, I would, you know, uh, I would totally call it a great film, but I also, totally understand that it's only a great film to people who grew up with Star Wars. So if you don't know what Star Wars is, then the movie is meaningless, right? It doesn't, mm. like, it's impossible to make sense of. So, um, yeah. so I think this, this, this struggle that's going on with, you know, where, uh, where we've transitioned from, um, moving from one kind of cultural objects, object to another one, right? That, that, that things are cycles that, that, that sort of mature and develop and then, and then uh, diminish or it sort of disappear. Now that that's no longer the case, right? Now that every franchise is here literally for forever, um, we're now like finding these new movies that that are are developing ways of facilitating that. Which again, I have very mixed feelings about. Um, so because the idea it means, of legacy sequels, you mean? Yes, exactly. And that IP is you know really IP is what it's all about. So everything has to be uh, part of some big IP package. And they're the most valuable things in the world, and they're just going to keep on coming, right? So, mm. um, so I think what that does to our, you know, our sense of history or historicity, if you want to call it that, or uh, 
and and you know this sort of conundrum of being in this post future era that we that we occupy um uh i think that's that's like it's 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 this continuous intensification of stuff that people like frederick jameson were talking about in the early 90s but it's just so weird to see it you know be entering this total you know black mirror phase that we now seem to be sure, uh, seem sure, to be a part definitely. of so for you um the kind of dominance of intellectual property and technological developments which have ensured that media never really dies um and can always be seen so like disney plus is launching like next month or something and oh yeah we've had it here in the netherlands now for uh for four months for four weeks i've been uh we get a free trial subscription to get everybody you know hooked um Mm. which is funny because like i i i of course i got the free subscription and i looked at what they were offering and i was like oh cool they have uh the black hole and return to oz in hd you know these sort of Mm. like very obscure disney movies from back when they were just a really shitty media company that (laughs) made children's (laughs) entertainment um and they're box office giants and i haven't watched any of these things because all this like all the good disney stuff or disney owned stuff now like alien and predator like all that stuff i have all of it on disc i mean why am i going to stream it um uh, but so you're uh, not going to subscribe. I, um, I don't think so. No, okay. I don't think so. Not even for like the man. So, so okay. So, so this ties in with with what I did want to ask you about trying to balance being a media critic and being a fan. Yeah. Um. Like, I, how do you how how? Um. <laughs> well, I th- I think there's 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 a very basic level of enjoyment, or maybe you know, I think more more um more accurately addiction, you know, that Mm. like if that big Hollywood movies are just things that I, that there's something in me that makes me like, I just, I just want to see what it is, you know, and I'm very uh, vulnerable to the way that they market and promote these things. So, Mm. you know, they're big and splashy and noisy and, and there's, and I, I really love, you know, good popular culture, even though it's quite rare, you know, that, that Mm. a really good, big popular Hollywood movie is, is, is a rare thing. But when they, do it right you know it's 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 amazing uh to me right um so um so you're always sort of hoping for the the, that one in a hundred you know miracle for some against the odds and the last jedi is is like one it's like it's one of those yeah and i mean and spider-man into the spider-verse is one of those you know they Mm. they they do happen um uh but they um uh, and, and, and part of that is just, you know, my, my, you know, um, uh, childish self, uh, r- remaining, <laughs> remaining my childish self and just wanting to see, you know, to see a man fly and to see buildings collapse and to see spaceships, you know, shoot at each other, all that, all that kind of stuff, you know, just goofy comic book stuff, but in a way that is also, you know, in some strange way, politically interesting and meaningful. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the same kind of, um, uh, affection that I have for things like, you know, weird fiction by China Mieville, you know, where, where you read a lot of comic books and you read a lot of science fiction novels and a lot of fantasy. And, and most of it is shit, you know, is, you know, maybe not shit, but it's just, it's, most of it is just not great. Yeah. But there are people working in the field who just, who are able to combine this sort of, you know, you know, weird, crazy, and, and accessible popular vein that that these kinds of genres do uh well or can do well and combine it with something that is also really smart and politically you know interesting um and uh and and it's something like it, it is not like anything you've ever really really seen before um so so these things happen but they're you know and and i guess the way the way 
I, I guess to balance them, I don't know. I'm my, my reluctance to subscribe to Disney Plus is I, you know, I really don't want to give them any more of my money than I already that's, do. That's also my reluctance. Yeah. That's that's a big thing. And the other thing is, like, for years and years, I was on Facebook, and I would always tell myself, well, I have to be on Facebook because I have to understand what's going on. You know, I have to understand these processes, and I have to understand why people are so addicted to this, to this, you know, to this media, this biggest media format in the world, even though we know it's it's deeply evil and it's and it's and it's destroying. You know, destroying whatever was left of democracies of worldwide, um, and um, uh, and I think like a, a large part of that. I mean, there, there's a, there's like a kernel of truth in there that I do need to know what it is. But honestly, I knew what Facebook was and how it worked, and was able to talk about it. You know, long before I finally deleted my account. And I, even though I don't have an account anymore, I can still talk about it from a pretty informed way. So I think the same goes for uh, for Disney Plus. I think once you've once you've experienced what it what it's like to uh, be subscribed to a streaming video platform, if you've done Netflix for a while, you do you know that it's quite different from the way you engage with media when you're um, purchasing individual titles on legacy media like disc or Blu-ray, or when you're renting them from a video store, or when you're going to see them in the movie theater. It's also very different from uh, downloading them, you know. Consciously, like making a, a choice to download Game of Thrones or some other show uh, without a streaming uh, subscription. Uh, it's also different from watching traditional television because you're not just turning the TV on, you know, and flipping through channels until you find something that you want to stick with. Um, it's this weird combination of this, you know, algorithmic uh, environment where you go onto Netflix and spend, you know, an hour <laughs> browsing through all this stuff. You know, what's new, what's popular, what features strong female leads, what is, you know, Scandinavian noirish thriller, you know, all these weird categories that they have that are designed specifically for you, or almost specifically for you, to ultimately just sit down and watch, you know, old episodes of The Office, you know, that you've seen a hundred times. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's very, it's it's just, so I, I think having, uh, I, I had to have that experience for a while and able to understand what has changed about the way we consume, one thing that has changed about the way we uh, consume media and how they're distributed. Uh, but I like again. I, I now feel like okay. I understand that now. I really don't watch Netflix in that way that much anymore. Uh, and I don't think I need another subscription to another channel just to be able to uh, watch stuff that I could easily pirate, you know, elsewhere. <laughs> or should I not say that on an official podcast? I don't know. Uh, I'll. I'll it's fine, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I can cut it if if not. Um, okay. Uh, cool. I also wanted to ask about um, uh, the art itself and the texts. Um, yeah. So, Capitalist Superheroes, the book I book you wrote, I mentioned earlier, um, is framed around post nine eleven America and this idea that after nine eleven America was going through a kind of like national trauma, and that became reflected in the kind of art that was being made. Um, mm-hmm. And like uh, the popularity of superhero movies is directly linked to that. Um, so, the example which comes to mind is which you talk about quite a lot in the in the book um, is Superman Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sequence of Superman saving the plane uh, from crashing to the football stadium, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, you you talk you talk about that in, from the from the perspective of art being used to rectify real world history and fix what actually happened because nine yeah. eleven was this yeah. weird thing where for a couple of years up to it disaster movies had become really popular and then a disaster movie actually happened and then yes and then it was oh hang on what the fuck do we do now yeah. um, so. Uh, and then, and then, and then thereafter, stuff like Superman Returns is like taking that and and using art as, to try to try and fix it and present this alternative vision. Um, and I was wondering, um, 
Superman Returns was 2006, and we're now in 2019. Um, do you see any recent superhero movies or popular blockbusters as being explicitly or implicitly linked to real-world political and historical events? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, almost every single one of them. Okay. I think the, the um, uh, you know, it's funny, for, for a time I thought, well, you know, oh, damn, you know, I wrote this whole book on, on, on superhero movies, and, uh, you know, thinking, honestly, I mean, I wrote the, I think it... Um, uh, it came out in, in, in 2011 or something like that. And I, mm. it was most of it was written in 2009, 2010. Okay. And at that point, I mean, I thought, I wasn't the only one thinking that, but, you know, we were all wrong. We, we, a lot of people <laughs> thought that, that superhero movies had sort of, you know, they had reached their peak. You know, they'd come after, like, they'd really come up really fast after, after you know, in the 21st, in 21st century, after 2001. And mm. they had, a, you know, they, of course, they had a longer history. But as this, you know, big Hollywood phenomenon most of those kinds of, you know, subgenres or cycles, they, they sort of, you know, they, they, they wax and wane, you know, they, they come and then they, they peak and then something else comes to take their place a little bit, you know, as, as the dominant thing. But superheroes just, you know, they just kept growing and growing and growing. And now it seems like there's hardly anything but, you know, there's, mm. and, they're, and they're certainly not going to end anytime soon. And so I thought for a while, like, shit, you know, I, and I hung all of that up on, on this, you know, on this uh, you know, on, on 9-11, which by now is, is you know, my, 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 I now have students who were born after 9-11, which is weird. Oh my God. Uh, it's so weird, after that happened, so, <laughs> so it seems like ancient history, but you go to these movies and, uh, and the, the degree to which they are obsessively recreating those events in a metaphorical way, it just, it, it hasn't ended at all. You know, it's, I think, People often cite uh, Man of Steel and uh, the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, as these, you know, as these very, you know, very literal recreations of the imagery and the, you know, the towers falling down and the rubble and the smoke and, you know, yeah. attacks on New York and, 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 you know, both sort of reveling in all the destruction, but at the same time sort of... Uh, Transforming and you know a narrative that was that was mediated and 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 uh, you know discursively framed as a narrative of trauma into a narrative of triumph. So it's 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 making something that feels urgent and meaningful, but also traumatic, into something that can be uh, uh, can be lived through as a pleasurable commodity. You know that that the, mm. the anxiety and the suspense derives from this sort of historical knowledge and and reference. But at the same time, right, pop culture has to be pleasurable because we we we, we spend money on it and we we you know, you know we we That's don't think we're, we're learning anything from it. We just we we want it to be fun. Yeah. Um, so um, so I think in in all of these uh, pretty much all of these movies they're they're still about that question right they're still about what what do we become uh once the um uh once the you know once the towers come down when something like that happens who is our enemy uh how do we know we're still the good guys you know and it takes it in all kinds of directions so you know captain america the winter soldier is about you know maybe Maybe we were the bad guys all along, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean we can't still be the heroes if we, you know, if we realign ourselves. Sure. Um, uh, there's there's any number of ways, and 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 uh, I'm I'm just still always surprised by how that's one moment that clearly still defines uh, the um, uh, the geopolitical logic of the United States as a superpower, right? So, mm -hmm. and and I think that sense of re you know being in a historical phase where constantly 
defining what it means to be a superpower and doing that through this superpower of the biggest, you know, the world's biggest uh, franchise, the world's biggest media conglomerate, the world's biggest, mm. you know, pop culture icons, all of those things, you know, sort of blend together into one giant, you know, political thing that doesn't feel political. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's that's how I would how I would phrase it. I think it made sense. <laughs> okay, so there at least there's two of us. Yeah. <laughs> the minority of two, right? <laughs> um, on that note, um, did you do you think like what did you think of Joker? Because that is another film which is I think is explicitly political in many many aspects. Yeah, I thought I I I I, I hated Joker, um, and <laughs> yeah, and okay. uh, uh, and not not for not for the reasons I thought I would. I mean. Okay. Um, a lot of people thought it was going to be this, this you know, very this dangerous manifesto about incel culture and about yeah. you know, and, and and this thing that people were gonna, you know, people were gonna go out and murder people, you know, yeah. with with Joker makeup on, and it was gonna make the whole you know alt right movement so much stronger. Mm. And you know, as it turns out, it's mostly just you know tourists dressing up like the Joker and taking their photographs on those steps where he danced and 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 making memes out of out of that you know that moment and then making fun of each other over those memes. Yeah, I just yeah. felt it was it was really you know it was really superficial a really tedious film um that that has you know that 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 wear that like wears the clothes or the skin of of movies that are about something um yeah. and reintegrates them into a brand culture that is entirely about, you know, reselling IP, um, mm. big, you know, superhero IP, uh, but without any kind of, I mean, I mean, I have a lot of, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm a big Nolan hater in a way. I've never really liked his Batman movies very much, but I do think they're really interesting for, for what they're doing for the, the contradictory politics that they, that they express for their, you know, this sort of violent, you know, super, um, uh, conservatism that they express while at the same time doing this sort of Can you weird, give an example liber- of, of the super conservatism. Oh, well, I, like the, the thing that Nolan always does as well, you know, he's, he's trying to be this centrist by saying, well, on the one hand, you know, too much chaos, we, a little chaos may, might be good for us. On the other hand, uh, we need to protect the status quo at all costs, you know, and, and maybe we need to bend a few rules to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it was especially, especially vivid in The Dark Knight Rises, although mm. that's not a film that I ended up writing about, but Mark Fisher and, uh, um, um, uh, Wells, Matt Zoller sites have both written really, really good analyses of the politics of The Dark Knight Rises and how what, what they're really afraid of is, um, is, you know, they, 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 they show these, these narratives about, uh, how exciting it would be if working class people rose up against the billionaires and how there's some kind of enjoyment there and sort of, and, and showing that as this kind of French revolution type moment, but in, you know, in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and, but then doing that in a way that is so disingenuous, that is so, you know, you know, wholly, you know, brutish, unthinking and violent and always putting this, you know, really sexy, attractive, debonair, billionaire Bruce Wayne as the embodiment of the things that we hold dear and and, and find that are worth fighting for. And this Mm -hmm. constant martyrdom of rich people who are willing to sacrifice, you know, all of their love and all of their riches and all of their cool toys just to keep the world, you know, <laughs> privately owned, <laughs> sure, <laughs> make sure yeah. like, so there's, so even though there's a lot of sort of, you know, what I like is that there are films that spark conversations about these things and that they, they aren't really coherent in their politics, the, though ultimately I would say they bend very heavily towards uh, the conservative side. Um, 
And I find that, yes, and I find that Joker really doesn't, doesn't even do any of that. It doesn't have any kind of political opinion. It doesn't show any kind of tension in the world. It shows a fundamentally, you know, good person in a really, really shitty world where nothing is worth saving. And it shows, well, and, and that guy starts doing really awful things uh, or bad things for, you know, at first for understandable reasons. And then he starts doing them for reasons that we can't understand because he's gone mad for, and, and it's, it's just so predictable and superficial and doesn't create any yeah. kind of excitement or tension. Yeah. Um, and, I thought and, that, um, I thought that J- Joker was probably, so the, I agree with you on the, the analysis of the Dark Knight Rises that it doesn't. So like, there was a lot, I remember there was a lot of chatter at the time about how it was kind of like the Occupy movement. Yeah. On yeah. the film, um, and Nolan was like, "No, it's not." It wasn't done very well. Um, and I feel like Joker is the first piece of modern Batman media to actually confront the reality that the superhero and the the protagonists are billionaires, um, and how that can be problematic within our current political context. And I've no idea whether the new Batman movie is going to touch on that, but um, I thought it was interesting that Joker did try to tackle that. But I do agree with you that it wasn't done super well and it wasn't super interesting yeah it's it's i think as soon as you um as soon as you move from saying okay we have one guy who is living the experience of what it means to no longer have any public services and uh you know affordable health care and yeah uh, access to wealth or education um and then um and and develop that a little bit but then suddenly switch over to saying okay and so so there are riots going on in the streets and all the people doing that they're just uh they're just thugs who are dangerous and crazy um and uh these two things will suddenly join forces and then all of a sudden there is no coherent narrative anymore it's just simply he goes off the deep end and and that's it i think there was an opportunity there to have a, a quite radical um to have a quite radical story be told about mm-hmm. what it might mean to have real political change uh, based on these problems but ultimately i'd say joker is still far too much a conservative batman film in the way that it portrays um uh the you know every every form of working class life outside of the protagonist's life uh, you know who is who is a victim of all of this as uh you know thuggish street riots and street violence you know it's all mm. it's all just an, and, and and no other characters really get a kind of voice in there and also we find out that a lot of his experience was the experience of an unreliable narrator so probably a lot mm. of the positive things that we see um that uh in uh in his narrative were his fantasies rather than reality so it ends up you know it ends up actually um uh i think abandoning or even um uh what's the word um uh uh, betraying its main character, right? As mm. as our as our avatar, as our a point of of sympathy, which I thought was a real waste, a waste of a good performance. And but you know, it's Todd Phillips, so you know, what are you going to do if the <laughs> the writer director of The Hangover Part Three is in charge is in Hangover charge of one of these me. things? <laughs> and of course, it made a hundred billion dollars. So now we're going to get lots and lots more of these kinds of films, for better or for worse, that are set within. I was just last night. I was watching um, the David Fincher films. Zodiac, which is, I think, oh, yeah. one of the great, yeah. you know, American films of the 21st century. And already I was thinking, okay, so 
you know, they, they, if they would make this movie today, it would be set within the Marvel or the DC universe. And this whole story about, you know, a couple of really interesting characters pursuing a, a serial killer. The only way they're going to be able to make a movie like that is if it's the origin story of some other, you know, Batman supervillain or Marvel supervillain or something like that. And at, at the end, you get like, okay, and so that's how we became the Penguin, you know, the Zodiac mm. is the Penguin or something like that. Zodiac such... is the Penguin. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to so, so you mentioned um, the criticism of the Joker uh, movie within the media about how it was going to, you know, cause all these alt right riots, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, which didn't, as you said, hasn't actually happened. Um, do you think art and especially popular media has a political responsibility? Um, no, I think it's the other way around. I think, um, I think our, we as an audience and especially people, um, in, in, in the media, uh, uh, have, uh, have a much, have a, have a responsibility to think critically and talk critically about the stories that we consume. So, um, I, I wrote a, a, a critical piece about uh, The Lion King last summer for the Washington Post, and mm. it, it created this weird uproar because I said The Lion King is a fascist story, which, you know, I, I'm right, so there you have it. But, <laughs> um, but a lot of people got super upset, and the, and the funny thing is that, and it was on Fox News, you know, it was all over the place, it was mm. crazy. Mm. Um, and the thing was, they um, nobody actually, or hardly anybody really argued with the with the article that I'd written, with the points that I made in the article, they just said, that's obviously bullshit because it's a Disney movie and we all love Disney movies. So how can a Disney movie be fascist? They're not even political. It's based on Hamlet. It's for children. It's about animals. You know, these are the sort of the, the ways to actually not, not engage with the, uh, uh, with the, with the point I was trying to make. Um, and, and I find this in every, at every, at every, every, any point that I write an article that's critical of big, franchises and the only articles that i write pretty much are critical of those franchises mm. we get all of these people who are sort of you know jumping it's like they're they're willing to take a bullet for disney because they're like disney makes the best movies and the marvel movies are the best they're the most successful franchise in the world and when martin scorsese says you know they're like amusement park rides well fuck martin scorsese what the fuck does he know you know mm. people get mm. super angry uh, and they get so angry because somebody's attacking a thing that they derive pleasure from and they're just not people, I, I think as a society, we, 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 and, you know, media, I think, especially like radio, television and, and, and YouTube have been instrumental in moving us further and further towards this framework of anti-intellectualism. And I mean, uh, one part of me gets it, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> like our, our current global environment the world the world of global capitalism is such a dystopian fucking hellhole it's so depressing that if you have a few things if you can find a few things that you can legitimately enjoy you know that you can laugh about and cry about and talk to your friends about we don't have to you know you, you feel you just don't want to ruin it by think by 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 inter- interrogating it or becoming yeah, critical yeah. of it or something so we're very uh protective of the things that we that we that we get to enjoy and, mm-hmm. and get to spend, you know, this diminishing amount of free time that we even have with. Um, so I, I, I get part of that logic, but nevertheless, and I think this is a point that China Mieville makes so well in his uh, Halloween lecture that's been on YouTube for a long time. Is like, we, nevertheless, as socialists, right? It, it is in a way kind of our job. It's our calling to ruin things for other people by by pointing out to them that, like, no, we we have to. You know, we we can't afford not to because once we <laughs> once we decide as a culture, right, as a culture to no 
longer really think about what kind of stories we're we're consuming or what they mean um mm. or you know and and not in a sense of sort of that, that there aren't enough think pieces about joker because clearly clearly there are but but they're all at this sort of micro level you know they're all about 10 things joker gets wrong about mental health you know or the mm. 10 things joker gets right about what it's like to live in a city on low income you know or those kinds yeah, of things yeah, yeah. i think at a, at a at a larger scale we don't get enough of a kind of intellectual uh, engagement, critical intellectual engagement with uh, with what our culture is, and of course I would say that because it's the only <laughs> the only thing that I do. So I'm saying we should have more of this. We should have more of, <laughs> more, more of what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th that is, I think it's it's more a sense of that than of saying you know we need to teach filmmakers to be more responsible because good luck with that you know i mean if i was yeah. a filmmaker i like you are you know i would just try to make the movies that i want to make in whatever way i can you know it's already yeah. so hard and then you're gonna have to sort of go through some kind of committee to get it approved or something no nah, good mm -hmm. luck no <laughs> yeah that's an, that's an interesting take um fair enough um i just quickly wanted to ask you um again explain it for people who perhaps don't know what it is um you're also the assistant professor of transmedia as well as cultural theory and your um book uh other book uh, science fiction fantasy and politics transmedia world building beyond capitalism obviously mentions it um would you be able to define what transmedia is for people who don't know um yeah i guess you know it's um like the way i always try to introduce it to my students is you know is saying okay it's it's a hard concept for us to understand or to, to understand maybe because it's just so obvious because everything every franchise that we now know is transmedial transmedial simply means that it's it's not uh, a story a story or a story world that only exists in one medium like so there's a movie or there's a tv show or there's a yeah. video game or there's a novel uh or something like or a radio program right but mm -hmm. that 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 world like stretches out co more or less consistently across multiple different media mm -hmm. so uh so like with the walking dead you know you could read the comic books you can watch the tv show you can play like a whole variety of different genres of uh, video games you can read mm -hmm. novels and they're all more or less you know they're 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 there are there are some disparities but they're they're more or less kind of set in the same universe and you yeah. actually gain a lot of um enjoyment and insight by not just watching or reading one of them but by uh by by pursuing like by diving in right and, and finding more and more to uh, to engage with and finding all the easter eggs and stuff like that I so think star wars um, is a particular star wars is exactly yeah yeah um there's a, I, I uh, edited a book uh, two years ago called Star Wars and the History of Transmedia Storytelling. So it's mm. that, that, that it's a, a collection, it's open access, so anybody can, can just download it online. Um, the, um, it's a collection of essays uh, that are all about different aspects of how Star Wars, how the, the sort of, you know, the way in which we think of Star Wars is something that is fully transmedial because, you know, it's, it's the story extends into role-playing games, into TV shows, into TV movies, um, uh, it's been on radio, of course, video games, you know, there's all kinds of ways to engage with it beyond the films. So the book, all the, all the essays in the book are about uh, different ways in which, sometimes very unknown ways in which um, that process was always driven by the specific organization of media industries at the time that it was being made. So, mm -hmm. um, so you would get like the Mos Eisley Cantina would show up in the, the Richard Pryor show as uh, as an extension of Star Wars, you know, where Richard mm -hmm. Pryor was like the, the 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 goofy bartender in the Mos Eisley Cantina, and there were actually like the aliens from Star Wars were there and actual characters mm -hmm. from Star Wars, and it was treated as if it was really a part of the Star Wars universe at the time. I mean, now of course we don't really think of the Richard Pryor show as being a 
canonical aspect of the Star Wars universe because <laughs> we constantly, you know, the, the Lucasfilm has always constantly been sort of erasing some things, like uh, I think most notoriously the uh, Star Wars holiday special uh, and, oh, yes. and foregrounding other things, right? By, by always sort of constantly saying, no, actually the story was always about Anakin Skywalker. No, actually yeah. the story was always about the Skywalker family. No, actually, this, you know, so, so there's this, the, the fascinating thing to me is that it's... Time. As, yeah, it's always it's, it's always sort of retroactively yes. creating continuity by yeah. foregrounding some aspects and diminishing others. Yeah, um, okay. And I think that's like that for for me the the science fiction, fantasy, and politics book uh, really d comes from my interest of thinking about global capitalism as a process of actual world building. Right? It's like you know we we all know frederick jameson famously said you know it's become easier for us to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism mm. um but uh, i think a lot of contemporary critics one, like one of my favorite points that a lot of contemporary radical uh, uh critics make is that in, in fact you know global capitalism is a very vulnerable very volatile system that can be quite easily overturned you know if we would just if we would just try a little bit harder yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's a fictional thing you know it's 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 not simply the reality that was always there it's this thing that a lot of people like a small group of people put a lot of effort into creating that world like yeah. into world building and 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 that same group of that the that small group of you know bankers and and CEOs and Jeff fucking Bezos you know they're constantly working to to prop it up and to maintain it and try to keep it from from tumbling down and i so i try to in the book to relate that process of you know thinking about global capitalism as a conscious act of world building to world building in science fiction and fantasy um uh series and how they can on the one hand a lot of them exist to kind of prop up our belief in the system but there's also uh, some, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's also uh, some examples of uh, world-building franchises that actually provide a kind of contours of thinking beyond capitalism, thinking outside of it, uh, and, and that we can, you know, we need those because we need narratives in order to maintain, you know, a, to, to develop ideas about post-capitalist futures, which, of course, we desperately need. Yeah, um, that's that's really interesting, and again, seeks very nicely into what I just wanted to quickly ask you um, to wrap <laughs> up. Um what do you see as the future of socialism? Um, I think right now the strongest narrative for the future of socialism is uh, the one that uh, that that the Labour Party in the UK has been has been expressing in the recent conference that uh, prominent you know supposedly far left you know like sort of left leaning centrists like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez mm -hmm. and Bernie Sanders have been proposing is sort of let's let's first try and return to a kind of democratic socialism, right? And to say uh, let's try to reinvigorate people's um, belief in uh, in uh, uh, social democracy as an institution, which is the core problem is that too many people have lost their faith in that. That's where the whole, you know, populist rise derives from. And to have a narrative that in which this sort of idea of climate change is central. So I think the Green New Deal is, is um, you know, clearly for myself and other radical socialists, it's, it's you know, it's it's never going to be enough and it's not pure enough and it's not going to fix any fix everything at all. And it, there's always the risk of it becoming this kind of green capitalism that will only continue and maintain this, the, you know, the systems of, uh, uh, radical social inequality that exists worldwide, but it's an imp like the, the thing that we need is a strong narrative, a strong sense of a future that feels um, achievable and that creates hope. And and the the, the 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 phrase that I always like most, it's you know it's a Gramscian phrase, but it's uh, 
it's there's there's a bunch of of of, of uh, far left authors that have written about it recently. Is you know not uh, uh, no to optimism, yes to hope. Right. I think that's that's <laughs> what we need to embrace. This sense of uh, you know we can, we can't afford to be optimistic because there's no reason to be optimistic, but we can also can't afford to abandon hope because like without hope there is no future. So and I think those narratives that the narrative of saying we need to invest massively. Right in terms of in, uh, investment in labor, but especially in the institutions that organize these things in in central governments that a lot that will uh, facilitate a transition to um, uh, you know the the whatever the green new deal or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think that that idea of um, uh, together with a return to uh, the limits model. That I think you know, in 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 uh, the history of thinking about the Anthropocene and climate change, we've we've gone from you know it started in the nineteen seventies, you know, in recent history anyway, with uh, with the limits with the spaceship Earth model, right? By saying okay, we like we should think of Earth as a spaceship with limited resources, so we have to be really careful with how we use them, and then of course it shifted over to the sustainability model, which is about, well, how far, you know, how much are we willing to sacrifice, you know, and always pushing those limits a little bit further. So that's what, that's where green capitalism comes in, because it's always about moving the, moving the fence post, right, moving the signpost and making everything always a little bit more. Um, so I think, and uh, first shifting over to really embracing, you know, not just embracing a green new deal, but saying, okay, well, let's, let's now become part of that conversation and create narratives and, and, and speculative futures that allow us to imagine what a po what the Green New Deal would look like from our perspective, from a radical left perspective, and see if we can find strong narratives there that push it in the right direction. Um, and then to say, okay, you know, that's, that's step one. And then step two is saying, okay, well, then if, if we're on Spaceship Earth, uh, and we and we we come to understand this, then that means a lot of changes. Like that, that means like the way we actually apply those change that that systemic shift needs to be guided and uh, delimited by th that notion, right? So, yeah. uh, uh, like limits to everything in that sense, and that that can be very you know that can be that can be fun. I think <laughs> <laughs> this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Dan. And uh, if you're listening, go check out the books, Capitalist Superiors and science fiction, fantasy and politics, transmedia world building beyond capitalism. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.